Welcome to the Sanctum. Here we study the mysteries of Dungeon Crawl Classics and Appendix N. With your Keepers of Mysteries, Jen Brinkman, Mark Bruner, Bob Brinkman. Enter the Sanctum Socorro and be inspired. Welcome to the Sanctum Socorum podcast, where we plumb the depths of Appendix N as it pertains to the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game, and we're here to help you serve these literary offerings at your DCC RPG table. I'm Bob, and with me as always are Jen. Hello. And Mark. Hello, everyone. And tonight's topic is Changeling Earth by Fred Saberhagen. Jen, your turn. Tell us about it. Yay! Alternate title being Ardna's World. The planet was Earth. The time was 50,000 years from now. Magic and witchcraft worked, and the old science didn't. Why this was so, nobody knew. It had always been that way during the long tyranny of the Empire of the East. During that same period, there had always been little bands of rebels using fragments of white magic against the demonic armies. Rolf was the latest of these rebels, and he had on his side the mysterious power known as Ardna. When Rolf finally finds Ardna, he learns of the change through which Ardna forced technology to be replaced by magic in this alternate Earth of a far distant future. The discovery of Ardna's origin, the climactic showdown of 50 millennia of cosmic contention, and Rolf's part in it, combined to make a thrilling adventure that concludes the struggle between the old technology and the new demonology. Cool. Yeah, this was so much fun. Mark, what, <laughs> what was your just initial takeaway on this book? This one was a fun book to read. And I think my initial approach was really the, kind of the curiosity aspect out of all the, um, you know, Appendix N, Fred Saberhagen is obviously kind of a large name. But the only book that's named or called out in the Appendix N is Changeling Earth. And it's the third book of what came to be a four-part series. But initially, when they were doing the Appendix N, this was the third book of three. And why was this one singled out? So I kind of approached it from a, you know, what is it about Changeling Earth or Ardna's World that specifically was the reason why it was called out for D&D? This is a, a curious book just because it's, it's very influenced by the time. You know, it was written during the Cold War. So you see quite a bit of the East versus West parallels and technology uh, coming to uh, a head and conclusion with what turns out to be an ancient in the current timeline where the change erupted and gets into the details of how that change created magic and also dampened the existing technology. It was a lot of fun to read. I thought it was a big change of pace from some of the more traditional fantasy novels that are associated with appendix and literature. I thought it was a bit of a change of pace compared to some of the other post-apocalyptic stories we've read recently, too. Yeah. It had a much different feel to it overall. 
it has really kind of a fantasy feel in a post-apocalyptic world. And yeah, the battle that's raged for 50 millennia, and you've got a demon that battled another demon for a thousand years and scoured the life from a continent. The scale of this story, it kind of gives it weight just by the way things are described. This isn't, oh, a recent rebellion. This is something that has been building and building. And as readers, we get to see the whole thing come to its conclusion. I liked that a lot. And yet, there is still a feeling of hope throughout the entire trilogy. Yeah, I'm the dummy who read the whole thing. <laughs> Additional background research is is, uh, is what we call that. <laughs> there were actually a lot of aspects that I loved from the first book. I felt a little more tied to the first than the third book, but it's the opposite of that Black Sun Deathcrawl feel. I felt it was a nice change. Well, it gets into that cycle of hope or cycle of resurrection, right? Because this is the culmination of that 50,000-year wait. And it only becomes apparent, you know, sort of what the magnitudes of, of that is later in the series, which is a nice effect. It's a, it's a nice sort of narrative that Fred Saberhagen put together that makes you invested in that story. Like you said, Bob, I think it makes it more compelling because of that. Well, and I think, you know, the original title, Changeling Earth versus Ardena's World, which is what it was retitled later, I think Changeling Earth is a lot more revealing and evocative of the state of the world in the story and what had happened. It's kind of that play on the change. I love the fact that demons are actually personified nuclear weapons. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? Giant, uh, the warheads were falling and the change came and they became demons. Oh, oh, that is yeah, cool. Yeah, it's a really cool idea. So you had that and the whole ending scene sort of reminded me of the end of Ralph Bakshi's Wizards. You've got these armies that are closing in on each other and then in the center you just have two central figures facing off, in this case, Ardna and Orcus. And there's just that entire feel, yes, these armies have arrived, but they're really secondary. They're there as an audience for this cosmic event that is playing out. They are there to bear witness to the end. Yeah, it's a very token sort of feel as well, because the clash doesn't have as great effect as you know the ring bearers in their quest. You know, that's a kind of a delaying tactic similar to what how the ending sub is here. And it brings that sort of epic narrative to the forefront. Yeah, not gonna lie, guys, I felt a little bit of Aslan versus the White Witch. Hmm. I could see that. Yeah, I yeah. could see that. There's certainly some anti-hero elements in the West, the West of rebels, the West of white magic, the West of non-demon invocations. They are the antithesis of the Empire of the East, which is presented as treacherous and filled with demon sorcerers. And it's a stark contrast between those two forces. It was an interesting subversion of that, I guess, at times when you see the way the West approaches the heist scene in the middle of the story, or the way that the Emperor of the East is somewhat humanized relative to some of his advisors into the demon Orcus and his point of view storytelling. I thought it was really interesting that there's that moment when we're learning the background of Orcus and they talk about the whole East versus West. And as a reader, of course, it's very simple to kind of overlay your preconceptions of what East and West are. Well, the East is evil. This is in the seventies, obviously the Russians and this is, but really things like it could have been North, South, up, down, blue, green. They just settled on East, West. <laughs> and so it takes any preconceptions you have Certainly, you know, in my case, I started really looking at it, and there's so many ways you can interpret it. It's almost like, since the East is all me, 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 it's like, is this capitalism versus, like, socialist communism? What are we looking at here? And so there's so many different philosophical 
views you could take on the division and what is meant. And this is a great reminder of uh, something that most English teachers tend to forget, which is sometimes a good story is just a good story. <laughs> That's true. It's also nice to know that there's actually 11 books that come after Artemis World. I had one of those sudden shocks of realization when I was going through my research for Fred Saberhagen. I was reading the books that followed the Sword series, you know, just oh, re- yeah. looking at the titles. I was like, wait a second. I <laughs> totally read these books when I was a kid, and I had no idea they were connected to any longer-term story. And I just completely forgotten about those books until I started seeing the titles of the swords, like Shieldbreaker and Farslayer. And I was like, I'm really glad that it's re-engaged me with that, because I, I, I enjoyed those stories. To be fair, they take place a thousand years after this book. Sure. So by this point, Ardna is, is long forgotten. So they can be certainly read standalone and you haven't lost anything. I mean, that's how I read them. I read the book Swords and I read the Lost Swords. And uh, yeah, it was really neat, though, when I learned that, like, oh, this is all one world. That's really cool. And of course, Saber Hagen being a Chicagoan, I can just picture him writing these books in the 70s and 80s and eating good pizza. <laughs> and, uh, listening to good music and i'm pretty okay with all of that i will say i'm a fan you know while this material is obviously post-apocalyptic and there are some technical terminologies here and there i found it a lot easier to get through than half of the post-apocalyptic works that we've reviewed just the writing style itself besides the fact that there's no big or foreign words just for the sake of it it's got a much more approachable feel to it and yet at the same time It is set 50,000 years from modern day, which right there makes it much different than Metamorphosis Alpha or MCC, and yet the world seems more familiar than when placed into the post-apocalyptic games. I think that's in part for a couple things. One, I've always found Saberhagen is a breezy read. He really is. His story is going to have a sense of weight and scope, but you're not sitting down to a dry slog fest where you know, every chapter people break out into song and then you go back into the march. His stuff <laughs> is light, fluffy fantasy reading, stylistically speaking. But also the world that it's set in, while it's post-apocalyptic, it is and it isn't. Because as you're reading it, it could be any fantasy world, and he doesn't really dig deep. It's essentially just a primitive, almost medieval level of tech for the most part. And so it's something that, especially as gamers, we're very comfortable with, we're very familiar with. The fact that it's not overly described is no problem for us, because we've got those descriptions. So we're not dealing with gigantic ancient tech that is far superior to anything we know. We're dealing with wood, plaster, and mud daub villages with people that are mostly dealing with magic and common arms. So it it makes this whole thing very approachable. All of Saberhagen stuff, very approachable, I think. I don't know how this was in the first two books, but there's a very only light sketch of the world in the setting. And that lends itself to sort of the portability aspect of this could be any place, any time. And then you overlay the larger themes of 50,000 years in the future. I think that throughout the book three that we read, Mm -hmm. uh, at least, you know, it it seemed... (laughs) Those of us that weren't going for extra credit. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, there, there wasn't a lot of world building. It was very simplistic, East versus West. There's a generic continent that they're fighting on. The descriptions are very not detailed 
and it echoes throughout this you know the book and it's kind of echoes because they're also traveling in an unpopulated part of the world for most of the book you know as they journey to what presumably is like an, an ancient pre-disaster site or site that has been inhospitable for some period of time and now you know nobody lives there it's just a, the place that nobody lives and so there's not a lot of interactions with cultures or different places the, the most detail really you get is the caravanasi i guess mm-hmm. is how you might pronounce it in that sort of setting it's an outpost even that that's just you get a brief sketch of some of the inhabitants and some of the travelers that go there and i don't know if like i said jen if you had a better feel from the other books whether that was how he typically approached the world um to genericize it my my feeling is that the westerners i'm thinking they wrapped around the other way because the location for the final scenes and everything in in this third book is described to me to be pretty much equidistant between the eastern lands and the territories of the west but it almost seems like they went around the globe in the other fashion at the beginning because there were some kind of on the outskirts of both the eastern and western territories in the beginning books you had the satraps in the eastern empire they may not be the emperors yet but you had the satrapies underneath and honestly what drew me in is this is the book we have is an is an omnibus of the three and the speech that is detailed at the very beginning the first scene that you get it is this prisoner retorting to his torturer and it starts hear me ekaman hear me for i am ardna ardna who rides the elephant who wields the lightning who rends fortification as the rushing passage of time consumes cheap cloth you slay me in this avatar but i live on in other human beings i am ardna and in the end i will slay thee and thou wilt not live on and continues with similar vehemence and just strength of belief in the tone and the satrap who's receiving this speech is very unsettled because they believe in wizardry who is this god ardna and even as rolf comes into the story he was on the outskirts of everything he had no concept of what a god would even be and to be quite frank up until we see the literal sign <laughs> describing what ardna is it is not until then that he makes the jump from deity to patron <laughs> yeah that is very true and I do have to say, as an aside, I really didn't see Chup join in sides with Rolf after the first two books. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no spoilers. Uh, but even the feathered folk, the large birds that... Yeah. They, they speak in song or they speak in sing song, I guess is how it's kind of described. Well, anything with a talking to you, the right. ooh sound is always just a little bit more exaggerated with just a couple extra letters to give that inflection. Um, I feel like... You guys got robbed of the full description of them, because in the first book, it described exactly how tall they were and that it would take between three and four of them to carry a teenager the size of Rolf. And just the opposing forces of the reptiles versus the birds, the The leather leather wings. wings versus the feathered folk. Yeah. I think that elements of the backstory, what I would call the backstory, but clearly it's part of this continuing narrative in the omnibus, you know, the elements of the backstory, they keep popping up and confusing, you know, the, the reader of, of who's only reading on book three, <laughs> you know, that, that which, is, which is, let's face it, you and I, 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 I can see that no, falling a little flat. I, I'll give you that. There's a lot of that that happens, but at the same time, 
I never was so jarring. It's not critical to the narrative at this point. I think it was never such a big disruption that it made me really question why we're focusing on this third part. I think that the things that I was looking for is like, what makes this third part unique in the sense of why is this one called out? You know, what what is it about this part of the narrative that... There's a lot more dwelling on the demon and devil aspect of it, for lack of better words. Yeah, which is cool. This, this idea of powers, right, in this world is a big emphasis in terms terms of people are used to powers taking over seers and powers being tapped by wizards. And these powers are either demons or potentially some white powers, you know, that, um, you know, like are, the are- elementals. <laughs> I certainly agree with you. While there are things that are familiar to us, well, just like when I read Orcus, I was like, oh, Orcus. And then I stopped and I looked at it in the context. And of course, the context is it's named after the ancient Roman god who got mm-hmm. kind of subsumed into Hades along with Despater. So we've got all this stuff and you know, the most powerful demon is locked away in this weird otherworldly prison and there's this powerful maybe supernatural being ardna and it's reaching out and it was doing so proactively and that was kind of a difference i think in that normally like you said seers reach out or you know people are casting augury they're reaching out to gods and ardna's like hey don't go that way Wait, wait, wait. Uh, I was, I, and what happened? <laughs> Ardna is manifesting himself through other people from time to time. And yeah, very all-powerful kind of thing. It, it really skirts that line between a religious and an arcane figure. It also skirts for me the sort of the plot line between the literal god in the machine, you know, that <laughs> Ardna represents. He, he's Well, this he is, he's the machine and the god, I think. Really. He's the machine and the god, I guess, yeah. And how that's deftly handled, I would say, but it gets right up to the edge of being, oh, come on, Ardna's the one manipulating all this and taking away the agency from all these other characters. But I don't think it quite goes over that line. You know, it still manages to maintain that human element, which makes you still invested somewhat in the characters. Well, I think... Uh, Part of the reason you can stay invested is because the characters are like, hey, wait a minute, we have agency. When Ardna says, take your army and go north, the guy's like, um, yeah, about that. I'm going to talk to my seers. <laughs> and the seers give him different answers. And so at no point do people just blindly accept the word of God telling them what to do. Except They're for still- Rolf. And that's only well, because yeah, that's he went through the time where he didn't take the word of Ardna. Yeah, I'm but assuming you that's missed that part. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but so overall, the world itself and the players in it still have agency. They don't just blindly follow things. And that makes it interesting. So it's not just a DM railroading an adventure. Yeah. yeah. And it does put it into a better context when you're able to shift between these different points of view and towards the end of the novel when it's powers fighting powers and you're sort of invested in the middle of the gods or the patrons you know that are conflicting with each other you you suddenly go to their points of view and start seeing sort of the scale of their ambitions and their machinations right arden is sort of changing the path of humanity to get to this point and orcus's evolving sort of thoughts on how he came to be and where his place is now i also really found his point of view kind of curious or, or kind of compelling to make him a little bit more an interesting figure he thinks he's this bound power, but he also knows he has limits because I think at one point in the novel, he starts going past the moon and he realizes he's afraid of these things, actually what's out there beyond his worldview. And you sort of get this next layer of scope of there are even more critical and big things going on than just this tiny pale blue dot. (laughs) But Orcus wants to go back and master it. 
Yeah, I, I thought it, it really does humanize him. Yeah. I mean, let's face it. You know, the end of the book is a supernatural patron versus a patron AI. And with <laughs> oh, absolutely. MCC about to release, at least in PDF as we record this, how awesome is <laughs> that's, that that's, like, that's That's a merging of worlds, yeah. I'm like, yeah, this one really does belong in Chapter 9. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Almost word for word. <laughs> Unless anybody else said anything else, let's move over to things to stat. Right off the bat, when I was looking at it, I had the instant feel that I wanted to write the technologist up as a class. I think that for something like MCC, not really, because there's already rules in place for working with technology and things. But the way the technologist is written, if you're running a DCC game where there is kind of old technology, the whole idea that they can make some of it work, they're not really sure how. It's almost like the technologist is a different way of handling artifact checks from MCC. And they've got their own take on it. And the technologist had zero knowledge of electronics. Right. Which was an interesting line to cross. Well, they had very specific understandings of certain things that they could still get to work. And there's a sense that the whole magic of technology, for you know, lack of a better term, has been somewhat displaced by the magic of the change, right? And, right. and only after the final conflict takes place is there possibly a, a reawakening, a reaccess to the real technology of the old world. I thought that writing up some of the various elementals, the forest, the desert, the prairie elemental, because those are so different from the traditional elementals we're used to in any fantasy setting. Yeah, the prairie really threw me for a loop. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The prairie elemental whose ability was to change distance. Mm -hmm. And as they're marching, they're watching the ground beneath them stretch further and further. Those are so different from, you know, the elementals or even the para-elementals that were introduced in D&D. They're different. I thought those were really cool. The leather wings and the feathered folk could easily be done as either monsters or as races, especially the feathered folk probably more than the leather wings, but they were all intelligent. Yes, and they all spoke. Well, and yes, the Leather Wings were scouts. They were messengers. They were essentially air cav. So those would be really nice to write up. Of course, patron write-ups for Orcus and Ardna. Hmm. (laughs) And for Appendix C, the Curse of the Crone. Mm. Yeah. That was really cool. Those are the things that really gripped me that I took away. I was like, I I could see writing these up. I could see putting these at my table. What about you, Jen? A lot of these aspects were reminders to me. Like, foremost, any failed sorcery can result in the appearance of a demon or elemental. They describe Orcus and his kind as the demons born of sun-like fires when it was essentially one explosion paired with another. I really kind of dug the life-draining spell that Wood uses to sacrifice the victims, which he visualized as a dungeon door and unlocking each thing. Because for the sacrifice, he couldn't kill them with weapons. He couldn't physically harm them. That was neat. Yeah, he described it as needing like solvents and lubricants to melt the seals and the oil of the hinges of this dungeon door. Just such a cool idea. And it evokes such imagery, too. Yeah, just... So now you're visualizing this, and you're a little upset if that gets interrupted. And <laughs> Well, yeah, because the dungeon door was what was holding back Orcus. And so he had that kind of urgency, that whole, get it right. Yeah. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> Stregeef and the Feathered Folk 
I guess they could be monsters, allies, NPCs, or a race, really. Or, depending on how cool you want to make them, Strygeef really had some shining moments in The Broken Land, so you could even go and make him a lesser patron. There were a couple of things in the second book, The Black Mountains, that led me to the ideas of starting up a, a mirage plant. And they mentioned that djinns were akin to elementals in their power and neutrality, just as powerful as demons, but, you know, nicer. Which, after mm-hmm. your first dead game, I, I laughed a lot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and they led me to believe that the black gem that we see in the beginning of Ardna's world is a phylactery of some sort. And I think we need more of those in general. I think there's only been one module that we've experienced that had anything of the sort uh, of a demon phylactery. We really don't see any of those in DCC. And I I think it's kind of a shame because instead of finding a gem that's worth something, a gem that is worth something and someone else says, wait, that's more than a gem, makes it more interesting than just something you're going to sell for gold. And I'm kind of burying the lead here because one of my absolute favorite, favorite parts, and I was even gushing to Bob as I was reading the first book, forgetting I had two more books to get through, the elephant that they talk about. When Rolf meets, shall we say, the elephant. The way it was personified and the way it was described, it was above and beyond the, okay, describe a ballpoint pen, but, you know, make sure you use nice and archaic terms because nobody recognizes it. It was more along the lines of, it was making some noises of uncertainty, but then those noises quieted down so... Clearly, it had accepted Rolf and the elephantine masks inside and just more parts of the elephant. And its nose up front was able to deal destruction. Uh, but the way it was written was another reminder that if you're in a fantasy setting or even in a post-apocalyptic setting, you got to describe it in a way that doesn't just not spell it out, but in a way that's entertaining to everybody at the table. Yeah, that's something that you see or you're reminded of when you're in that post-apocalyptic setting a lot more than when you're in that fantasy setting and you are introducing your characters to the strange and the unknown. That's a good sort of judge's guide to say, these characters sometimes don't travel 10 miles beyond their village, you know, if they're starting peasants. What do they know of the world and what do they know of extra planar creatures or aliens, you know, that might be coming along and really take that kind of advice and apply it to your table. Well, and it's important to keep in mind that if you're dealing with a medieval-style society, a modern newspaper, at least as long as you're still in print, has more information than most people would be exposed to in their lifetime. Quite true. So, Mark, what would you bring to the table from this? Some of the things that I saw specifically, you called out, Bob, I mean, the elementals, the way that they are used, especially as a combat aid to these large swirling combats, much more generalized or larger scale than, you know, what I'm typically used to seeing or reading descriptions of with your individual elemental coming up and it's a, you know, eight to hit die creature that has a single attack. These are scouring sands of the desert. I think the only one that was really personified, at least in book three, since, you know, I didn't go for extra credits um, <laughs> was the forest elemental because he kind of described that one that one seemed sort of ent-like but the others yeah the scarring winds the stretching lands 
Yeah, it's much more of a force of nature, but it's clearly has some of its own alien intelligence or its own elemental intelligence. And I think you could do a lot of cool things with expanding what an elemental is and how it's evoked. So I, I like that a lot, the, especially the counter aspect of almost like a cleric's turning ability with the counter wizard you know, when he begins to pull apart or try to counteract the, the elemental and it becomes painful for the Wizard of the West who's trying to maintain his focus on this elemental. And it, it's a really kind of cool description. Sort of like a combination of a spell duel and turn unholy. Exactly. I, I'd love to see like a, a table that's merging of those kind of things to simplify spell duels, but make it such that there's some game story element or effect that goes into oh, it. Oh man, I hadn't even caught that. That's brilliant. What that led me into also was just just the idea of, you know, something that's not done in a lot of you know role playing games because you're dealing with individual characters and working through individual narratives and party narratives is the book does a lot to evoke a larger scale conflict, even middle scale conflicts where, you know, the Western band of maybe 10 of the individuals are holding off an army of 50, right, or a unit of 50 troops. And how you scale conflict to make it role playable while you're still not losing some of the interesting aspects of combat and things like that. I think that kind of lends itself to how do you scale things in a role playing sense where you can easily transport between when the party is joining up with a larger group of folks that are of common interest, you know, and they're fighting an opposing force. You want to be able to tell that story and Gee, how you do there that. were some sort of mass combat rules for these. <laughs> <laughs> mm, and yeah, we'll see. <laughs> I love the idea of powers and how you could turn or subtly change the existing spells like Second Sight and Speak with Dead to appropriate this more larger aspect of contacting a power that speaks through you and, and is a little bit more of its own agent, right? It's taking over you or possessing you in a sense. So I think you could come up with a spell that would be a little bit different flavor take on what those existing spells in DCC provide you, which is sort of a tentative step into you know, asking for guidance, but this is a, I'm giving myself over to something in order to be a, a vessel to uh -huh. this thing. And it, that may have some consequence. So you think that should be done differently than merely trying to uh, contact one's patron? You know, I think because these are not quite the patron level. These are sort of well, spirits. Some of them aren't, yeah. Yeah, some of them aren't. And, and I think that this could be handled via a spell-like effect is, is kind of what I was thinking. Especially these enigmatic wizards when they change faces and appearance. And they had this cool scene when Duncan is asking his advisors. He goes to a secluded clearing in the forest he knows these men, he knows these wizards or these advisors, but they have to alter their shape in order to convey the information, you know, how, how do they present that information, and he can't quite identify which is which. And I love that aspect, yeah. you know, of this, and, and the fact that wizards are spending years of studying, aging themselves over lifetimes, and they're altering their appearance, and, and they also have this effect of when they're channeling these powers, they have to almost go into a substitute form in order to handle that, because otherwise the consequences would be maybe their own form is erased or taken over. So that that's kind of a cool idea. One of the wizards, the Emperor of the East, top advisor, his name is Wood. He rides a griffin slash eagle slash beast, demon beast mount, <laughs> which I thought would be a kind of a cool monster to stat up just because it's, yeah. uh, it ends up being a neat little narrative point. And then I agree, there has to be, once the MCC is released, I know there will be an Ardna patron AI and an Orcus one that's its counterpart, maybe in the DCC world or even the Crawljammer world, since it's somewhat part technology. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that's what I came up with, yeah. And the setting just so crosses those two so nicely. Yeah. So, okay, so we've talked about things to stat for the table. So, Jen, what would you set on your table? What about props and audio? The dream sequence when Rolf and Catherine finally meet Ardna and they're encouraged just to finally rest 
after days and days of being on the run. And as they slept, he provided them with basically dream sequences to give them the backstory of what he is, how he came to be, etc. And, you know, why the world is like it is now. And it got me to thinking, you could put together an order of images or even video, throw it into a scrolling sideshow to tell a story like you would for your party if they were in a castle and saw a series of tapestries. Oh, yeah. Could also start kind of a running theme, you know, if you're running a campaign with pictorial clues. The crude painted image of man versus some sort of metal beast. Maybe next session, a grainy portrait of a man on a flying thing or in a flying thing. Later, maybe one of your wizards receives a quote written somewhere in a book that in the future, men must not make gods of finite beings like myself. As you're arcing things up to the point of playing this storyline, because it would be so easy to do. The other thing I thought would be really cool to have is something along the line of a daylight monitor or one of those lights that fluctuates from time to time. The brighter it is, it's high noon. The more likely it is that reptiles are out in the skies and your feathered allies are slumbering and can't come help you. So kind of a little uh, storytelling device, if you will, on the table. (laughs) Nice, nice. For me, it was all about the visuals in this one. I'm plumb out of audio. Next! (laughs) Totally totally understand. What do you have, Mark? I thought that the elements and the elementals, the summoning of those, you could have samples of different types of sand or earth or grass to go along with the prairie. Just so you have perhaps even a component aspect to players when they want to summon something, because there's a lot of that description in bringing out the bag of sand and pouring it out and things like that. I thought that'd be kind of a cool thing to just have maybe vials of different elements just as a flavor thing. I also went down that route of some way of indicating when the party has to change you know, their approach because they may be observed. And you know, I love that idea of there are reptiles or observers flying almost like drones way above the influence of the party unless they come down and directly attack them, but that you make them have to be discreet or stealthy in their movements and their actions. And I love that idea that you came up with, Jen, about some sort of device that's inobtrusive in the background that's slowly gathering brightness and maybe the party's only slowly clued in as to what it means and by the consequences of their actions. I think mine was a little bit more cruder. I had this idea of a flying reptile uh, hanging from the ceiling, you know, <laughs> maybe on a cord that, that, that would be uh, a little bit more obvious. Or you or- can just send your kid in with a dragon on a stick, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. But you could do the same, something similar with like a music key or a sound, you know, a change in the tone. And, and that's it's a repeating thing. And again, I, I like the idea of, the player is not quite knowing what's going on because maybe these observers are so far up that they are not aware of them, but they're aware of the something subtly changing. And over, only over time do they realize that, oh, they've been watched this whole time. And oh, it happens every high noon or it happens during daylight and when they're out in the open. And what are they going to do about it now? And so I like that idea a lot. What it made me think of audioly is that there's some desert description. There's some traveling over the waste. There's some journeying in unpopulated lands. It reminded me a lot of Brian Eno, an album called uh, Ambient 4 on Land, which is kind of a good background ambient noise album that I've used in Call of Cthulhu sessions, actually. Um, there's another one I've used kind of from a Call of Cthulhu playlist that this made me think of also, which was Carl Sanders. He's got a series of solo albums, I think the Saurian or Saurian solo albums, which are based on Egyptian folk and they're kind of an ambient counter to the heavy metal thrash that he did with the band Nile. (laughs) 
And so I, <laughs> okay. I, you know, I think that those are kind of the journeyings. I had a more barren wasteland in my mind, but you know, clearly I think in the book, it's it's much more of a, the earth is rebounded. It's, you know, for whatever disaster, it's not a wasteland, but it's unpopulated, which made me think of the emptiness. And, the, and these two albums sort of evoke that emptiness for me. Nice. What about you, Bob? In what I've been thinking of, at no point did I think of anything kind of warning the party of things overhead. And after you mentioning both drones and stuffed reptiles, I'm thinking... <laughs> This would be a great game to play with miniatures because you can buy those tiny drones that are like the size of a silver dollar. <laughs> and you can just have it lift up and just bounce a couple times on someone's miniature. Bam, bam, bam. You're on um, Okay, now that would be I crude. Th- <laughs> uh, yeah, but it'd be funny. Uh, and, and unexpected. Just think about it. You're sitting there, you're running, and a little tiny drone lifts up from behind your judge's screen and flies out and starts attacking. Oh, yeah. Players would never see that coming. I think that you know, visually and prop-wise, it was a little tough for me because things are not only vague, but also the majority of this world is so common to every other. So the things I really latched on to were kind of the extraordinary. I liked the idea of having like broken bits of circuit board board, fallout shelter signs, maybe a, a Geiger counter, aged black and white photos of, of scientists in lab coats for those periods where you get to kind of that Ardna ending, where you get to that subterranean bastion of what once was. Thinking of the leather wings, alligator skins, or little alligator claws, which, I mean, we're in Florida, you can buy those very easily. You know, you could have things like that. And remember, the messenger lizards weren't that big. Musically is where I kind of focused. I thought about some military marches. I, I pretty much stayed German, like the the Kaiser Wilhelm Sieg's March, the Radsky March, the Yorkshire March. Again, they're a little bit brassy, I think, for the world, but they set a tone, and they're not like a Sousa March, all kind of umpa cheery. <laughs> but I also started thinking about you know some of the epic war music, such as War Music by uh, Farank. 360 or Epic Legend from Oracle Music, Approaching Jupiter from Carl Palmquist. These have kind of that broad, sweeping, huge war sort of feel to them. And then for a battle feel, as opposed to the feel of a large war, there's an artist, Heather Alexander, and she did a song called The March of Cambrith. And anytime, really, I'm thinking about my characters just need to beat the living snot out of someone. That is the song that plays in my head. And so <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's I think it's time to share. And then also for people that are into something a little bit more modern, I think that battle music for this sort of story is speed metal. So Speed Metal War by Warfist, Urn by Black Steel Worship, Last Dance with the Ripper, which is by Old Blood, a group out of Slovakia. <laughs> good stuff if you want kind of that modern razor's edge to the music for for the setting of war that's where i left okay, off so between the two cool. of you we can cover the whole trilogy that works <laughs> <laughs> all right so mark what did you think about dcc modules that you'd be inspired to play with and rescan yeah this is a tough one because i think we are all sort of thinking that the first big connection and we've you know used edgar johnson's against the atomic overlord before i know for hyro's <laughs> journey yeah it's, it, curses it, it's, there's so much from this work 
that is echoed in Against the Atomic Overlord. But there's a lot that fits in the previous Appendix N work that we did as well. There's a lot that you could take with that setting and the change you know, that happens in both the context of the novel and in the context of the adventure and really intertwine them or make it a basis for the narrative that gets overlaid onto that setting that Edgar Johnson uses. That's a clear inheritor of a lot that was going on in Changeling Earth. And I, I really appreciated the you're getting that view after reading this book and having you know gone through that that module. The other ones that came up to my mind, you know, that I love that high scene in the middle. Uh, I thought that the pacing was pretty good. I thought that it was a nice sort of capture of a mini sort of narrative part of the story. There's a lot of details that went into their escape, like covering up their tracks with wizardry, you know, by making the sand blow over their footprints. That's thought were, were nice touches. And it made me think a lot of the jeweler who dealt in Stardust, which is Harley mm-hmm. Stroh's adventure that was republished in Chaos Rising recently, but was originally, I think, a free RPG day adventure. 2012. 2012, yeah. And so that whole aspect of the band has to figure out how to get inside this dwelling and recover what is the values that are there. And in the, in the story, in the narrative, that value is clear. It's it's being driven by Ardna. In this one, it's being driven by the player's greed or by the other motives they may have. But it's very similar to they have to come up with a plan that has to execute flawlessly. Otherwise, there will be consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like that aspect. Tim Callahan published a mini adventure called Demon Drums for Gen Con. I want to say it was 2015. Maybe. Yeah, wasn't that his, I've created this, come up and say hi and I'll give it to you. Exactly. Yeah. I love those kind of things that when creators are giving back to the community in that free way. And and in that one, I believe there's uh, the idea of these gelts, these sort of navigators of space and time are trapped in a phase shift. You know, they're, they're sort of frozen between worlds. And it made me think of Orcus's dilemma and how they reach out to you know these ape-like creatures with six arms that have these demon drums that they play and how they possess them in a sense. You know, it made me think of the Orcus reaching out to the powers and, and how you could maybe even reskin it or maybe just evoke the feeling I think that comes from the novel too of these beings that are trapped in and are seeking escape somehow and this is how the party has to encounter them nice and then lastly of course by the time this comes out I think people will be a lot more exposed to MCC but having been fortunate enough to get a glimpse of it through various projects and playtests MCC patrons are just really really something I think a lot of people are going to resonate with in terms of both this narrative but just also at the playing table patron AIs that are written up are are really well done. And I think, of course, people get a lot more information about them when the material is released. But really looking forward to that becoming a part of people's ongoing campaigns, you know, the idea of these these AIs that are sentient and godlike in their evolution. So well put. Nice. What about you, Jim? You know, with the Eastern land setting, Tales of the Fallen Empire. Oh, yeah. Got that's, that's a great one. The difference in magics. You've got the satrapies and the empires versus the Western and Anglo civilization. And because there was obviously a little bit of a Celtic influence with some of the Western stuff. Well, and Tales of the Fallen Empire is getting new life through new TSR. They're going to be putting out some adventures for it. And that makes me happy. They have some really good classes in there too. And just the whole setting and the description of some of these things, like the amulet that was the key component that had to be, shall we say, the quest item for this book. Yeah, it really resonated with some of the items that I've seen in that book. And I am so torn. I just want to start 
a brand new campaign and have like one month set in each setting that's been put out. <laughs> but you could run this book using pretty much Tales of the Fallen Empire. You could get your emperors in there and your eastern wizards and maybe even the djinns. The way station came to mind because toward the end they're taking a boat into a mine and that particular module can fit into either a fantastical or futuristic setting. Mm-hmm. And that one is by David. I'm going to murder his name if I try. <laughs> <laughs> the Infernal Crucible of Cezarkon the Mad. There, mm. There's the guardians yeah, yeah. that are summoned into place and more inscribed glyphs and wards than might be visible or than you would know what to do with. And you could take quite a few hints from that one and slide it into your table, whether or not you're running that module. And Jewels of the Carnifex, a Harley Strohs, it really resonated with me as I was reading this book. <laughs> <laughs> You've got this place that's kind of lost to time, including, oh, yeah, a lot of the aspects to get where you need to go are not necessarily safe. And ultimately, the characters face making important choices about the destiny of important gems. And what they do with it will determine the flow of the story. If Rolf had decided to, say, not bring the amulet back as he was asked to by Ardna, who knows how that whole thing would have turned out. And, and another nod for the Atomic Overlord. You know, you could take it a step further if you wanted to, you know, use just a reskin to run it along the lines of this book and look at the Broken Lands or, or the entire trilogy and just modify the adventure a little bit so they get to explore the inside of the, um, shall we say, elephant <laughs> 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 and see how it interacts with the PCs. Nice. Okay. My primary takeaway was this really strikes me as kind of a cross between MCC and DCC, and it's almost a bridge between them. Ooh. Um, yeah, and, that's, that's a good point. And between that and the heist, which you know, for Mark was the jeweler who dealt in Stardust, to me, that bridge becomes Ningobble's Cave. Oh. Because it opens up to all of these strange worlds. And so taking your campaign idea, Jen, you said you'd like to run a month in each of these settings. So I'll your characters. For a few years. <laughs> <laughs> your characters are making a heist in Lankmar because that heist scene is very it, to me it's very Lankmar it's just we're going to dress up we're going to disguise ourselves we're going to go knock on this door as we get close we stab him in the ribs and burst into the door well if that doesn't say low magic Lankmar nothing does yeah. <laughs> and so you could use the, the cave and you could bounce back and forth because there's so many DCC settings that at least brush against this particular world that you could play with a lot of them. I think that in yet another nod to against the atomic overload, <laughs> you could just simply as the characters are moving through the adventure, they could just find the tattered note that says in the future, men must not make gods of finite beings like myself. You could really drop that anywhere, but I think in against the atomic overlord, it really would have some impact. Oh mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
But I, for me, that's kind of what I took away from the most part. I tend to be a very fantasy purist or sci-fi purist. And Jen, I know that you tend to be the same way. This really makes me want to put that sci-fi chocolate in my fantasy peanut butter <laughs> and blend them around and then bounce against Barsoom and then mm-hmm. have some like mm-hmm. licorice. <laughs> and I mean, there's just so much good oh, stuff going yeah. on. But there's a lot of really good stuff here. Jewels of the Carnifex. If the Carnifex isn't an ancient deity, that's easy enough to reskin to sci- sci-fi and instead it's something like Ardna. Or if the Carnifex is a deity, but the power around that they have to get through is a patron AI, as opposed to a different deity. Well, that's what I'm saying. You have Jewels of the Carnifex. Put it in a sci-fi setting. Drop it into your MCC campaign. The Carnifex becomes Ardna. And All right, that's fair. And Ardna is under siege, like at the end of the story. There's plenty of meat on the bones of this novel. And uh, I think that kind of brings us to our featured DCC adventure for the show, Silent Nightfall by Daniel J. Bishop from Purple Duck Games. Nice. Yeah. So, Jen, tell us about Silent Nightfall. Oh, y'all want to listen to me talk more? (laughs) (laughs) There are often periods of greater or lesser magical influence in the world. Millennia ago, during a period of reduced magical activity, there was a nuclear power station at this location. When magical influences began to spread once more, the nuclear core became unstable and began to develop a form of malevolent sentience. The ancients placed the core in a shaft three miles deep, the last 500 feet of which were filled with heavy water. This shaft and its attendant control center were given the code name Silent Nightfall. So right off the bat, personified nuclear power. And quite honestly, as a judge, man, I hate you guys because you published this on the back of the book. That's given away way too much information already. Well, don't show it to your players. (laughs) (laughs) It's redacted. The other one. Yes. That's the other one that came to mind in clear sort of parallel with the story, you know, along with Against the Atomic Overlord, because so much of what Daniel Bishop is echoing in a really lovely, you know, short adventure, it's part of that campaign element series that mm-hmm. Purple Duck presents, is calls or echoes a lot of the themes coming from the book, the patron that's really some malevolent um, sentience, the ancient technology that's been transformed over time as magical influence change the world. So this is really good uh, counterpoint to the story, I think. I just like, if you take, you know, descending into the ruined depths for this adventure, that's sort of like the arrival at Ardna. Those eye-opening moments of fantasy characters and ancient technology just scream to be expanded. Okay. And I can see entire side adventures slipping just crossways and diagonally from here. Once you get down there, finding another hallway, dealing with other intelligent AI systems and whatever purposes they might have. You could even take something like Expedition to the Barrier Peaks, change a few things, and just slap it on the side, and you're halfway down, and there's an opening, and there's other areas, and there's the entire personnel quarters. You could do so much with this that while it's technically a campaign element, it could be a campaign opener and easily the first year of a campaign if you really want to just keep (laughs) 
pushing it. And also, again, it's another great way to move characters from DCC to MCC, slipping through the cracks of this technological bastion that was from a time of low magic and high tech and slipping through to the world after the Great Disaster. Yeah, and he calls or evokes much of that larger world with some of the additional appendices that are in the back of the book, like the idea of demi-patrons, you know, which is first sketched out as part of this campaign element book, which is now the idea that a patron has a, kind of a limited power but has ability to influence in its local area, which is, you know, a, a kind of a cool idea. And also the Radiant Brotherhood. These adherents to technology uh, are so devoted that they live in these hierarchical societies and have developed psychic defenses over time, um, but they're very zealots. And I, I love that sense of you could take that and make a whole narrative story of this land that's connected to the complex, uh, like you said, Bob. Yes. Oh, um, Daniel Bishop gave us tetanus rules. Uh (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Um, We also have an alternate spellburn chart for while you're in this area. And we have aberrations because, you know, demonic radiation does alter some things. Honestly, the entire Empire of the East trilogy would fit here. It has the nursery and skipping rhymes that are used as, you know, both mantras and plot points. And that speech about I am Ardna, a handful of people end up with this speech as Ardna occupies their body every now and then. So it's very akin to the soliloquies that you, you'll read throughout the series and so easily transferable. And come on, downright creepy Grellistrix. <laughs> I, I, I l- <sighs> And Bob speaks from someone who playtested this adventure. So, lucky you. Yeah. God, what's it been? Four years? (laughs) Three, something like that. Right. So, on that Um, note. It's a great module. It's a great adventure. And I don't think it sees enough sunlight. But I think this, the, the whole view of campaign elements is that people don't reach for them as an option for kind of a, a first thing they do, the way that they're advertised, at least. But this is really one of those settings that's just so well fleshed out on its own. Well, and this was two sessions for us. Yeah. And there's, like you said, Jen, there's so much in there, you know, that are these great sort of mini ideas and that are captured in the, in this one in particular, but throughout the campaign elements. I think, yeah, it, it just, it deserves more shout outs, more awareness that it's a great resource for judges. Let's just say what needs to be said, and that's Daniel Bishop has really read his appendix N, and <laughs> everything he writes... It's the surprise of nobody. <laughs> it calls back to a lot of appendix N stuff. Yes. If you're a fan of appendix N literature, you should be picking up his stuff, because there's not going to be a miss in there. Mm-hmm. And this calls itself an adventure, with the option of creating an entire campaign out of it. Very, very Yes. And the Shaft Crawler, that would be a little bit new compared to what's in Saber Higgins' books, but uh, you'll like it, I promise. (laughs) (laughs) Gallistrix. Okay, so, uh, Road Crew and Convention shoutouts. You know what? Let's start out with some free RPG Day shoutouts, because I want to start with Judge Ian Shears, who is a 
beast. Judge Ian was running at Destiny Games in Midland, Michigan, and he was faced with one player showed up for his Sailors on the Starless Sea session. Oof. Just one. And a lot of judges would have just called the game for not having enough players, but not Ian Cheers. No, no. <laughs> he ran that player through a hardcore funnel that resulted in 21 zero levels dying and one new player having the time of his life. Ian Shears, you are a rock star. Hell yeah. Woohoo. We have the Guardian of Secrets, Michael Hearn, who was running at Roll for Damage in Grovetown, Georgia. He ran a table of 20 players, 17 of whom were new to DCC. Oh, man. And wow. handed out his own swag, including the uh, <clears throat> super secret special Sanctum Sacrum free RPG day companion to a day <laughs> store who had been unable to get free RPG day, either the swag or the packages. Yeah, when I, when I heard that story, I just couldn't believe that that many players and how many of them were new to DCC. It's, a, it's amazing. Really, hats off to Michael. I'm surprised yeah. they Michael, all Michael, Ian, if you guys get together, you'd have a sane table. <laughs> <laughs> Two different approaches, but with equally great results. Yeah. <laughs> Guardian of Secrets Dan Domey ran a number of great games for Free RPG Day and added the special Sanctum Secorum Free RPG Day companion to the available swag. Thanks, Dan, for helping spread the gospel. So, since we are the Keepers of Mysteries, who are the Guardians of Secrets? You can be. Keep listening for details to come in the future for our Friends of the Library program. M. Nixick is running DCC Funnels from 2 to 6 p.m. every Saturday at Tacoma Games in Tacoma, Washington. And join the Appendix N Book Club of New York at Mia's Bakery on August 5th for their discussion of Michael Moorcock's The Stealer of Souls. Find Judge Jeff Goad for more info or simply be at Mia's Bakery on August 5th at noon. Judge Jeff Goad is also running DCC regularly at the Brooklyn Strategist every other Sunday. So find him online for information or drop by the store on July 16th. To continue with alliteration, Judge Jeff Bernstein continues running DCC RPG at Games Plus in Mount Prospect, Illinois. So check with the store or find him on G Plus or Facebook for more details. And on July 8th, Sarah Brown will be running a one-off funnel adventure at Cullison's Cards and Games in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Arkansas. The game runs from 6 to 10 p.m. Sanctum Secorum's free RPG Day Game Finder managed to assemble a list of 91 DCC and MCC games being run. Holy so cow. congratulations, <laughs> everybody in the community, for a job well done. If you had half as much fun as we did at any one of the 91 games across three Australian territories, four Canadian provinces, 35 U.S. states, and four continents, well, let's just say a good time was had by all. But we're not That's overachievers. Um, <laughs> friend of the show and fellow Guardian of Secrets, Troy Tucker, came down to Estero to join Bob and I for free RPG day. Yay! Before he returned to the sacred grounds from which he descended, Northport. Look for <laughs> Troy at the Magician's Forge in Northport, Florida on alternating Saturdays. Check with the store or find Troy on G Plus or Facebook for more info. And for the record, he ran Dark Trails at Dungeon Games on Free RPG Day, and it was awesome. And it was at high noon. Of course. Ooh, nice. And as we speak, Gen Con 50 is quickly approaching uh, in the middle of August. And some interesting feedback that we got from the Gen Con registration team was that DCC and MCC were, again, one of the most requested spots for gamers during the registration process. And within 48 hours of registration, 96% of all the DCC and MCC spots were signed up for. Wow. Um, a, it's just an amazing result in terms of the number of games that are being run, over 100 games 
this year with several spots per game. Um, and so really great shout out to the judges and, you know, the, the organizing team that put that together, especially Taco John, who yes. did a lot of that work uh, yeah. putting that together. Taco rocks. We love you, Taco. <laughs> <laughs> also currently going on is uh, North Texas RPG Gone registration and event submission, if I recall correctly. That's yeah, that's correct. It's it's badge registration and event submission is going on right now for the tenth anniversary of North Texas RPG Con. So you can start submitting games and register for a place or a badge uh, to attend next year's uh, special anniversary edition. And I believe that Gary Khan is having their 10th anniversary as well, also. Yes, yes that will be. And bad registration for that went live on Free RPG Day. They're in early March for the 2018 convention, so make sure to check your dates on that. It'll be different than this past year. Well, very cool. So if you want to see your creation in the DCC community's only free monthly e-zine, we would love to see what sort of things you have created based on your appendix and reading. Remember, we have quite a few things in our prize closet to give away in return for contributions, zines, modules, and even some great Appendix N. And are you running Road Crew Games? Drop us a line to let us know. You can submit your events or creations to us at the hub at sanctum.media or find us on the regular social media sites. In the meantime, if you feel so inclined, drop us an email, review us on iTunes, send us a messenger lizard. Mm, maybe not the latter one. Yeah. <laughs> Keep an eye out for our future topics, and we can include you in our material for the show companion. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next time. Be inspired. You have been listening to the Sanctum Secorum Podcast. Join us again next time when the Sanctum explores Lord Dunsany's classic, The King of Elfland's Daughter. The Sanctum Socorum Podcast has been a production of Sanctum Media. Copyright 2017.